Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Travis. We're Southern men de-reconstructing the South. We are here today to talk about fatherhood. And we're live, by the way. Like we are. We're, we're in person. We are in person. We sound the same because we're on the same mic. For, for better or worse. <laughs> Um, so we've gone through and, uh, talked about family and some general ideas. We wanted to get a little bit more granular when it comes to, uh, fatherhood and the scriptures have a lot to say about fatherhood. Um, but there's a couple of passages that we wanted to touch base on to kind of set the tone for this conversation moving forward. Um, the, the first passage that I want to bring up would be in Malachi 4. Now, I know we started this originally uh, with parental responsibility with Dabney, mm-hmm. which was, you know, actually probably about a year ago this weekend, something like about that. About like that, yeah. Um, and so, you know, just to go ahead and remind you, I'm going to go, it's Malachi 4. I'm going to start at verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgment. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Um, so here we see, you know, we, we now live post-New Testament. So we're looking and seeing that the, the Elijah, the prophet, would have been John the Baptist. Yep. Uh, I think we brought this out. You know, in the previous podcast, but for those that are just catching on, uh, this these are the last words spoken by God to the people of Israel before the um, before the four hundred years of silence, right? In the intertestamental period. Period. And now it's interesting to note that also God closed the mouth of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. Zacharias. I knew it started with a Z. I was going to say, anyways. Uh, Not Zephaniah. (laughs) (laughs) But but, um, essentially, he shuts his mouth, and and these are the last words spoken until he speaks to Zacharias. Did I say it right? Zacharias, okay. And um, and he says that your prophet, your son's going to be named John. And um, so we brought that link together that, you know, that God was silent, and the first thing he spoke was to a father. And not only that, but the first miracle, if you will, that was performed was shutting the father's mouth. Right. So the father shut his mouth, and then he shuts the father's mouth, and then a child's born. And when the child's born, he opens his mouth again. And that's when the New Testament really starts as far as God speaking to the people. Um, And it's interesting to note that within this passage I just read, he's like, remember the law of Moses. So he says, remember the law of Moses, which I commanded for you. And then he says that these statutes and the judgments are, are going to be with you until the fathers turn their hearts to the children. And, and I don't think that's unimportant to notice. And um, one of the, we were going to mention the um, passage in Deuteronomy that's the basis for the entire law, uh, which would be the Shema. Right. So uh, the Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, I am going to read 
a little bit extra around this because I want to set uh, the way that we were thinking about this is that uh, the passage in Malachi about um, fathers turning their hearts towards their children is sort of the door for this kind of a concept. And the real pillar here is the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I'm going to set the stage for this a little bit with reading the um, passages before and after. But these are commands given to the people of God, general commands, that every father is supposed to perform in his home. And I've been doing something very similar to this with my children because of this passage, this passage specifically. So it reads, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 15. Um, now these are the command, <clears throat> now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whether ye go to possess it, that thou mightiest fear that, that thou mightiest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey." Hear the Lord, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. And they shall be as frontlets before thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, and thou... And when thou shalt when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shall swear by him. Ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are around about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among ye. Lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. So this is this is a fairly long passage I'm reading, but the, the the thrust here is that the blessings of God were given to the the men who discipled their children to understand who God was, that God is one, He is above all, and that we're to love the Lord your that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Um, and so one of the practical ways in which I do this, and what I've, I've expanded this quite a bit because of the um, Apostles' Creed specifically and a few other elements of doctrine which are really important, um, we have a, a sort of a mantra that we say every evening while we do our devotions, and it is, um, there is one God eternally manifest in three distinct persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. Each are omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And then I go into um, the, the uh, specific points of we sinned in Adam. We continue to sin because we sin. We continue to sin because we love sin. And so our only hope is to repent and believe in Jesus. Um, but this is something that we repeat every night continually. And I've modified it slightly here and there when I think that something's going on a little too far or, um, or if I think something needs to be added especially. It's gotten longer <laughs> as, as the days have gone on. But um, I repeat this every evening. We pray, we sing, and we, we say this every night with the scriptures. Um, and I got this from this passage, but the, the, the real big takeaway is not that you have to do something that strict, um, although I recommend it. I, the, the point here is that, um, and he really emphasizes this, and these words which I command thee this day shalt be in thine heart, and, they, and thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. So the fathers here are commanded by God to very diligently teach their children. And then he gives specific examples. Thou shalt talk of them, talk of these principles, these ideas, when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou shalt rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets before thine eyes. And thou shalt write them on the post of thy house and in thy gates. So it's supposed to be everywhere that you look when you're in your home. These truths are supposed to be readily in front of you. Talk about them frequently. And, and the, the, the key here is that being a father, you are, continually you are continually teaching your children. Every moment that, that comes before you is an opportunity for your child to learn and for you to impart wisdom and, and, and uh, a love for God too. Um, and this right here sets the tone for that. This is the, the pillar, as we call it, which really holds everything else up. How am I honoring God and how am I loving God in this certain circumstance? Well, one of the interesting things that we, we wanted this to be the pillar of this particular podcast, but at the same time, it's really supposed to be the pillar of someone's home. Uh, yep. Whether or not we repeat the specific mantras, you know, on the daily or anything like that. I mean, I think that's totally, that's good. Uh, but at the same time, our actions should be centered around this particular statement, you know, the, the Shema, that the Lord our God is our God. Mm -hmm. And our actions should flow out from that, and we should really build... One of the things that I think is lost on us right now is is we don't understand the importance of a home. Right. Um, and that's partially to blame because of the culture that we live in, but then we've we've left that behind. Um, the home is should be the center of one's life. It should not just be a place you go to watch TV, eat supper, and sometimes not even eat supper now, um, and sleep. It's not just a shelter. It should be the this focal point of your life. It, it should... In in an ideal world, a home would produce more value than it, you know, than yeah. it throws away. Mm -hmm. So whenever I'm talking about um, the homes and the subdivisions, those are not strong homes because they produce nothing. They're, right. they're, they're literally just a money pit. Well, they're a money pit, and they're a drain on, on the the economy. They're a drain. They're a drain on the uh, 
environment around them. The community is not benefited by them. Um, yeah. And you don't really build good communities like that. Most of the time, those are rental homes. Yeah. And so you have people coming in and going out. There's no real community. People are set in opposition to one another because they don't have any longevity. They don't have any roots. Um, I, I would I would even term subdivisions as uh, 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 collectivist, root, rootless environments. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, because uh, you're not seeing a, a subdivision, you know, a home in the, a home in the suburbs being handed down multiple generations. Right, exactly. Um, and, and this is something that, if we're really bringing it back to Old Testament Israel, that was something they did. Even within, the, it was written into the redemption laws that after seven years, it must go back to this particular family. Even if you bought that field, it goes back yeah. to the family. Yeah. And, and it's to give the children an inheritance. Now, who would give that inheritance would obviously be the father. The father should be the one that maintains this particular ground, maintains the home life, mm-hmm. and really makes it profitable. Well, because, and the scriptures say that a good man leaves his children's children an inheritance. Right. Um, so it's it the the idea of what we're supposed to be doing is building people for generations. Whatever whatever we are doing, we want solid, rooted people for generations. So our 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 focal point is the the. I don't want to demean this by it, but using our analogy of the house, the front door being Malachi and our pillar being Deuteronomy 6, I would say that the artwork, the thing that brings your eye to the various parts of the home, would be uh, this idea of leaving an inheritance to your children's children. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really the eye-catching thing. When you when you see a family that's been in, the, in an area for generations... And they're they're invested in their community. That is a that's a gem, really. Um, and those people, unfortunately, the way that they're viewed in modernity is they're viewed as nags or um, just people getting in the way of progress, quote unquote, which ends up being whatever destructive thing we thought of this week. Whatever can make the most cookbooks. Yeah, right. Um, Well, I mean, I've sat around my particular area long enough that I, I can see that I can see the grandfather's inheritance going to squalor. Uh, people are so willingly give up the family farm. Yep. And and with that, like the farm is a the farm is tangible, but it's also a symbol of something even greater. And that's they're leaving their family legacy behind. Right. And they're taking away from their their the main pillar that should have been the center of their family. And going, you know, as Israel did after other gods, uh, they're they're leaving their culture, they're leaving their heritage, they're leaving everything, and I, I can't help. I, I don't want to. So I'm I'm not one that's typically to bash the boomers, because most boomers that I know are typically good people. Yeah. But at the same time, let's lay blame where blame is due. The boomers did not leave an inheritance within their children. They might have left something for their children. But they did not leave, instill in their children the, the values of a productive home. Of course, most boomers didn't have a productive home. 
Well, and, and you're you're talking, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and out myself here. Uh, I talked the other day about writing a book against the boomers and their lies. <laughs> um, I, I've, I'm pretty harsh against boomers, uh, unfortunately, for the boomers in my life. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is one of the big, the one of the big, big, big issues with boomers is boomers, by and large, um, run everything today. And they're 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 eking their way out because I mean they're just getting old and they're unable to hold power. Dying. Yeah, um, but you know the 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 ethos of the boomer was just make a bunch of money, mm-hmm. and you see that in the the managerial class. I think Sewell so called them uh, that that showed up during the 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 reign of the boomers. Reagan administration. That, yeah, that's when a lot of the middle management actually. The, the great conservative golden boy, Ronald yeah. Reagan. Great, great conservative right there. Um, no, but the, the the rise of the managerial class was was is a boomer institution. And it's been rapacious in, on the economy. It's been rapacious on the land. Um, it's, it's created so much damage to everything. Um, and it's, its whole goal, the whole goal of middle management... Was to maximize profits while minimizing expenditures, and what the the two things that took the hit were the workforce, the 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 common the common worker, boots on the ground guy, and the the future generations, because all of that profit just stayed up in the upper echelons in the boomer generation. Well, in a in a area that doesn't even produce any wealth. Managerial right. class does not produce anything. Correct. Yep. The the only thing they do is they just become a pain in the ass to everyone else. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, but I mean, okay. So so one of my defenses of the boomers is is if you go into a a place that a boomer runs and you shake his hand and hand in a job application, you're more than likely getting a job if you stand up straight. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. At, at least in my experience, I, I know that. Probably Midwest or somewhere like that would be a little bit different, but at the same time, you know, boomers still value hard work, even they, though it's kind they of do, talking yeah. out both sides of I their mean, mouth. I mean, the well, the, they value hard work. The 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 issue that I I'm I'm really bringing out here is that they tend to muzzle the ox, mm-hmm. so to speak. So they want hard work out of you. Um, all this we're going to tie back into fatherhood, I promise. I still want to pay you $7 an hour for $20 an hour work. Right, exactly. Um, and so, you know, really what we're, what we're laying the groundwork here and how this does tie back in is that, you know, the, the reigning ethos in America has been well, you buy a land so you can make profit off of it. You, you, the whole goal is to flip the home. Mm-hmm. That's what you do when you buy a house. You want it. You want it to to you want to, you want a little equity in there enough for you to make some money off of, and then you're going to flip the house and go move on to the next thing. And there's entire you know industries that were brought up about house flipping around house flipping. And in a sense, you know, I, I know. It costs a lot of money, but land's kind of cheap. It, it's not valued. It's thrown around as a commodity and not as um, a foundation, so to speak. So um, I, I guess the, the second 
um, kind of structural element to this of being a father is not just diligently teaching your children, but setting the example for your children and rooting your children in who and what you are. Because what would have come in, what would have come with this Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart, soul, heart, mind, soul, and strength. What comes with that is also the imparting of, you know, the Hebrew culture, and that and the the Hebrew people want to pass on their Hebrew culture, and this ties in right with with our entire podcast as a as a format and as a as a topic, because we want to pass on what it means to be a Southern, and so with that teaching. Take every opportunity with your children to teach them, um, and I, I think that really is the, the the prime purpose of a father is orderly teaching and orderly um, enculturation of your children. If only there was a book. That actually showed a father's wisdom. <laughs> trying to figure out a good way to segue. Uh, well, I mean, you, I guess you want me to jump in there. Are you going to jump? Well, in there? I mean, um, so so, so uh, I said that kind of tongue in cheek, but there, there is in fact a book. It's called the Book of Proverbs. Two. Two books: Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Yeah, Ecclesiastes is less about a father's wisdom, isn't it? Um, well, it's about putting wisdom in its proper place. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's kind of the wisdom of the wisdom, if you yeah. want to think of it like that. It's kind of, kind of depression, though. So it's like Solomon. See, rock. everybody reads it that way, and I don't. <laughs> I read it quite the opposite. Really? I, th- I think that um, the author of, of Ecclesiastes is actually very um, uh, optimistic. I think the point of Ecclesiastes really is at its core is putting all the practical wisdom in its place. So the, you know, I read Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as the right and the left hand of wisdom. Yeah. Um, so Proverbs is imparting all of the practical granular wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is really the book of philosophy in the yeah. Bible. Um, I can see that. So yeah. Proverbs 1 opens with the instruction of Solomon um, to his son. And the whole thing starts with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then when you go to the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes ends with something very similar. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So he ends with putting into place the practical wisdoms that were given to man and saying that the conclusion of any kind of wisdom that you have is to fear God and keep his commandments, to be like God. And so I, I, I cannot read... You know, me as, you know, being as big into philosophy as I am, I can't read Ecclesiastes as a, as a, as a negative book. I read it as a very positive book, but it's a book of order. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it's, that it's a ne- negative book, but it's, it definitely sounds like it was written somebody that had depression, but overcame it. Um, it. Well, what I'm saying is I don't think it's, it's depression so much as saying, 
um, it would be like me saying I've, I, I've gone out and I've built this house, but because I didn't build it on a rock, it's falling apart. Or I've gone out and because I mean he even brings up you know how he's he's played the matchmaker, how he's gotten a lot of wives, how he's gone and built buildings, and he said you know it's basically all worthless if it's not meant to worship Christ. Right. And so and, and I'm I'm being a little um, anachronistic there by putting Christ in there, but I mean really we know that's that's what he's talking about. Even he didn't realize that, but um, you know that. He is summing up all of his temporal knowledge, all of his wisdom, into the phrase "fear the Lord and keep His commandments." Well, it's interesting. I whenever you read the um, Ecclesiastes twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, it, he echoes a lot of the same sentiments from the Shema. Yes, and I, I mean, I don't think you can read that without, you know, especially not not a you know whatever century Israelite you know would have read this that they would have immediately thought the Shema because it was a part of their way of life. Right. And it was most likely a part of Solomon's Solomon's life, even though he kind of went a little awire in his life and chased after false gods. Right. Because of women, let's face it. it was That's exactly why, actually, because yeah. he married a bunch of pagan women. But um, so, but so so we're seeing, seeing Solomon at the end of his life, he's returning to the law mm -hmm. of his father and the wisdom of his mother. Um, who, by the way, if you know, for people that don't know, it's Bathsheba, the one that David had an affair with, and um, so it's kind of kind of interesting what how he gets the throne after that. Yeah, <laughs> um, a lot of infighting. Yeah, well, he was promised it. You know, he's like, you know, look, you you did this, and now he's going to get the throne because of your sin, David. Well, this is. Um... God set up the idea of the firstborn ruling the family after the father dies. And then throughout the history of his people... It's always the second boy. He, he reverses that. Yeah. Um, Joseph's boys, he said the younger shall serve... Uh, the, the older shall serve the younger. Yeah. Uh, and Joseph was even like, whoa, hold on. No, you got the wrong boy. He's yeah. like, no, cross the hands. You know, you... Um, well, well, I mean, even look at uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh -huh. uh, Esau, you know, went on to be a reprobate, and mm -hmm. uh, well, I guess he was a reprobate. I don't know if he ever was a follower of the God or you know the one true God. He seemed to have had a kind of repentance, but at yeah. the same time, I mean, God said, "Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated." Right. So even though there was a natural affection between the boys, I, I'm not sure about his. I hope I hope he's in heaven. I hope he wasn't uh, uh, damned, but I, I don't I don't know of anything. In scripture that lends me to that direction. Yeah, well, I mean, neither here nor there. Uh, the point is that Jacob was second born. Right. Um, even um, even look at who the king comes from. It comes from the line of Judah. Mm -hmm. Judah was not the firstborn. Right. Um, yep. He was the second or third son. And he, and even when Israel was blessing all of his children, half eight of his eight of his twelve sons got curses instead of blessings. Right. Um, so that was interesting. And then, um, well, I guess the, the tribe of Levi—it's it's kind of—it's always been firstborn as the high priest, right? Mm -hmm. um, always from the line of Aaron, which that also points to Christ, right? You want to you want to expound on that? Uh, yeah. So um, you you go all the way to the beginning. Uh, we wanted to get into Genesis one, anyways. 
Um, but this will be a good, a good. Uh, While we're going there, I want to bring up the fact that um, I I totally lost what I was about to say. <laughs> so this is kind of a I want I want to, I want to hit two points with bringing up Genesis. Um, I'm not going to read them because I'm not going to read you five chapters of Genesis. You can go do your own reading. <laughs> uh, we'll be here all day because I'm stupid and I can't read well. But um, what we're what we're getting not into stupid just from Mississippi. <laughs> well, you're from Bama, so it's all Mississippi. <laughs> Somebody was a state first. <laughs> well, right, Mississippi was um, the Greater Mississippi. I'm gonna keep rubbing this in. That meme's not going away, guys. <laughs> Um, so God, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, he sacrificed a, a firstborn, uh, sheep and covered them with the skins of those animals. And Adam, and I'm, I'm inferring a bit here because of what Adam was already supposed to have done. God's presence was with Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, even outside of the Garden of Eden. In fact, this is the whole reason Cain left. Um, but you have you have the the firstborn was Cain, and the secondborn was Abel. Now Cain took after his father in being a farmer. His God created Adam and set him in the garden. And Cain worked the ground. He brought forth a sacrifice of fruit. Abel was a herdsman. And he brought the first of his flock as a sacrifice, which mirrored the sacrifice that God gave for Adam and Eve when they had sinned and God was covering their sons. I cannot help but infer here that Adam taught his son the sacrifice that God performed for him and Eve. How else would they know if you didn't teach them, though? Well, the, the, only, the only other option is why I mentioned the presence of God was there. Mm -hmm. God spoke very openly with them. And I don't, I don't think it's until chapter 5 when it doesn't... I think it's until chapter 5 when it stops talking about God being present with them because right. that gets into the sinfulness of man. Um, and, and gets into Genesis chapter 6 where the... The thoughts of man were only evil continually. Yeah. Well, but you, you know, the text still implies that both Cain and Abel knew what they were supposed to be doing. Right. And then and then Cain refused to do it by bringing a sacrifice of fruit. Mm -hmm. um, and so here the firstborn is rejecting God, just like his father. And the secondborn is actually operating in the, the auspices of a priest... By bringing forth the sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock. Now again, we we see the imager here because we're we're you know in the we're in the new church, and we see the imagery of Christ in the original sacrifice as the, the sacrifice to cover sins, mm -hmm. and then Abel is recapitulating that sacrifice by giving it again for his sins, and Cain is refusing to do that. By bringing forth fruit. Mm -hmm. And so when God accepts Abel's sacrifice against the firstborn, 
So the firstborn gets angry and kills his brother because his brother showed him up, basically. And then when God says, what happened to your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? That's a sarcastic, flippant, you know, leave me alone kind of response. Mm -hmm. And so God curses him from the ground. And so now he can't even be like his father in his rebellion because he can't be the gardener. Um, and so the, the, the <clears throat> after this, Adam and Eve had Seth, and from Seth came another line. From Seth came uh, Enoch and Noah. Uh, but what's interesting with the two lines is you have two Lamechs um, at the ends of these two families. Um, the, the Lamech, who was the son of... Um, uh, uh, well, he was, he was one of the, the descendants of Cain. Um, he says to his two wives, Adal and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, hearken to my speech, for I have slain a man for wounding, and a young man, for, or, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And so he's saying that here that he can protect himself in his own power better than God can protect Cain. In his power. And he's, he's trying to show God up here. And Cain's re rejection of God from the beginning by not following through on that sacrifice that was an imagery of Christ. And then his sarcastic remark to Christ, to God. And then his um, complaints to God that, oh, your, your curse is too big. And then his leaving the presence of God, because obviously he didn't love God. Mm -hmm. He's rejecting Christ every time he turns around. And now, after he's gone, his descendants have created this family who the first polygamist is here. Um, and we see a, a, a tendency of anger and aggression and violence and um, um, just evil coming from his family line. Whereas when you go through Adam, Adam's generations start over. So he creates a separate genealogy mm -hmm. aside from Cain's specifically to establish the, the, the genealogy from Adam to Noah. And this Lamech at the end here, and Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, this, this same shall comfort us during our work and toil of our hands, because the ground which the Lord had cursed. So he's, he's making a prophecy over Noah actually here. Um, and he is looking back to his uh, grandfather, who was Enoch, who was taken up to God. And so we see that God was actually visiting this lineage from Adam, whereas he was completely absent from the other lineage, and even the other lineage hated him. Well, it says in the end of verse 4 that, um, uh, scroll down, And to Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Uh, from the Dukes of Hazard, uh, <laughs> then, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So, so we see the the thirdborn Seth, who walked within the you know walked with the Father. Who want to say that? Yep. Uh, and his children called on the name of the Lord. His children followed in the way of the original gardener. Right. Um, obviously, not without sin because. Thanks, Adam. Screwed it up for us all. <laughs> and um, but um, 
but yeah, but it's, it followed it as true as he could, and, and from that lineage, you know, begat all of humanity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because the only only people to survive was 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 from yeah was Noah, which was the son of Seth. <laughs> right. Um, so, and and just one more thing before I, um, before I'm, I, I cut it off here, the you know this this goes back to. Um, you know, Cain really is following in the in the footsteps of of Adam, because mm-hmm. we see in the fall, um, the serpent is sitting here talking to the woman, and when the and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the emphasis here is that. Adam was standing right there when the when the the snake said, you know, did God really say that you can't eat of any fruit of the garden? Adam could have stepped in and said, "Hold up, that's not what God said." Actually, yeah, exactly. He could have fedora tipped. And then when Eve said, "Well, we can't even touch the fruit." Adam should have stepped in and said, "Look, no, that's not what it is. This is what God said." And then when she's sitting there staring at the fruit, about to eat it, and he knows that she's pondering this over in her head. He could have slapped the fruit out of her hand. He could have told her, no, don't do that. Um, He could have stepped in at any moment, but he did not. He was with her the entire time, and he watched the whole thing unfold. Two two things I find interesting. Uh, One is that um, we always like to add extra legalisms right before about to sin. Okay. We want mm-hmm. to set up extra safeguards that right. are not commanded anywhere. Like, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't go out with guys that do, or however, right. however that old rhyme goes. Um, we always like to set up boundaries so that we don't actually touch the sin, but those boundaries essentially seek to... They, they cause us to sin in other ways. Right. Um, and in here, the, you know, it was doubting what God actually said. Um, it was Adam being a weak leader. Um, which brings me to my second point was that fathers have, con- you know, the actions of fathers have consequences. Absolutely. Um, so we saw the descendants of Cain following after the steps of Cain, but then also we can see throughout the entire Old Testament and part of the New Testament of the, the consequences of bad fathers. Yep. Um, Judah. Judah. Um, let's see. Um, I mean, you could even say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because you know, uh, two of those three wanted to act like their wives weren't their wives, right? So that they could, you know, not get. Well, I don't want to get killed, and yeah. it's like, bro, it's your wife. Yeah. And both the both of the the kings who were ogling their wife were like, you should have told me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wouldn't have even been ogling. Like, you told me she was your sister. I thought that everything was good. I've, I've never understood understood that entire scenario. I mean. Why would someone? I, mean, I guess if if a nation's so wicked, they'll just kill you to take your wife. But they don't sound like this is these are absolutely wicked nations. Well, it doesn't sound like they're negatively spoken of at all, really. No, I mean, because it actually sounds like they, in some semblance, do fear the Lord. Well, God told one of them because He shut the wombs of all the women in the land. Yeah, and he and and he told he was told by God, that's not his sister. Yeah. That's his wife. And that's when he confronts him and is like, 
you you brought a curse on my land to leave right you know and that and it's 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 constantly we see bad fathers breed evil in their into their children well we can also look at um uh who is that high priest the fat high priest that had two sons that offered strange fire in the book of mm -hmm. samuel yep you know he was a bad father and but then he led he basically raised up samuel who i mean for better or worse he fathered no children and if he did Scripture doesn't mention them. Right. Um, and then we can see um, uh, David, which we can say many good things about David, but David, a lot of bad things. A lot too. of bad things. Yeah. Um, and, and then Solomon. I mean, after the reign of Solomon, the, the, the countries get split in two, which, by the way, secession was never denounced <laughs> in anywhere in the Old Testament. Right. So, just want to point that out. Even the nation that God established had secession, and they were fine with it. Yep, they were. Uh, well, and and you know, really, we're we're talking about um, Solomon and David here, and the sins. So when you when you go to, um, and and I I realize what I sound like when I say this. So I don't want to undermine the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures are infallible and in inerrant word of God. Perfect in all ways given to us for our edification and for our rule of faith and practice. Um, but when you compare this to the myths of other other um, uh, religions, um, what you don't see is the evil of the fathers. Mm. The fathers are always spoken of in some of these glowing terms where they might make a mistake. I mean, the, the only one that I'm really aware of that, that treats their fathers that way would be Greek mythology, but Greek mythology, you know, it's either it's a light switch, really. Either they do all evil, or they're good, and if they do something bad, it's usually not their fault, mm -hmm. and it's this tragic thing, right? Except Zeus, um, he just laid with a bunch of women. He did, yeah, um, but <laughs> and he usually pays for it too. Um, <laughs> but you know, the the one of the things that really sets the the scriptures apart. Is that when it talks about a character or a patriarch of the faith, it it airs out all of their dirty laundry, and it in it really wants to to put in front of you that everybody, including especially the chosen people of God, are sinful, and we don't have a right to act as if we're better than everybody else in this way. In fact, we have a right. We only have a right. To say I am a I am a sinner deserving of hell by God, and so when I approach the situation, I need to approach it with fear and trembling, trying to see where I might be making a mistake. Um, and I say that not to pr propagate the idea of oh what a worm I am, right? I I, I don't believe in that kind of a mindset. Um, but the the thing that I'm bringing up here, and it's specifically related to fathers is that I think fathers ought to be especially self-critical, and I think they ought to uh, surround themselves with other men that would not hesitate to say, you know, look, man, I think that you dealt wrongly with your kid here, and you need to think about this. And, um, and it needs to come from a place of love. It can't be a place of trying to undercut him. You know, if he tries to do that in front of your family, then I would, that would be a problem. Um, but, you know, I'm speaking of 
you know, real brothers in Christ who are going to come beside you and, and say, I think you should have done this better. I think you need to go. Um, you know, my, my dad speaks to me a lot in this way where it's even now, um, you know, I, I think I think you're doing your, your wife wrong on this. You need to go back and apologize to your wife and do better. And that's that spurred me on to be a better man, right? Um, and so this this teaching aspect that I we kind of opened up with in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, where it's not simply we're repeating this as a mantra, although I do that, I, I literally do that with my children. Um, it's that we surround ourselves with men who are going to encourage us to be what we expect our children to be. And those are God-fearing people. Uh, one, one of the passages I want to bring up is, um, is, is from Ephesians. Um, and ye fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, I, I can honestly say I've never seen that in my life but I have seen it in other people's lives. Mm. And, and that's because, you know, I, I believe everybody says that the mothers have probably the, one of the bigger influences on children. That might be true, but fathers can ruin an entire household quicker than a mother can. Well, um, I, I would actually disagree. I think the father, even though he may be absent a lot, has a lot more impact. And, um, you know, we're, we're both here together recording. Um, our wives are currently you know, hanging out with the kids. And, you know, one of the comments that both of our wives have said is, you know, the, the kids can be absolute fools all day. And when, when the husband gets home, suddenly they start, you know, straightening up. Yeah. Because that, you know, suddenly law and order has returned to the home. <laughs> well, what, what I was bringing up was um, the uh, the passage from Proverbs where it's, um, mm. okay. I, I can't remember, uh, do you happen to remember what it was? The, uh, the law of the mother. Uh, oh, it's uh, I think it's don't forsake the wisdom of the father, um, or the law of thy mother. Yeah, so that's that that's in Proverbs one as well. So so in some aspects, I, I think that the the law of the mother does have hold more sway over, especially the smaller mean, child, yeah. children. Yeah. Um, I, I think the fathers are the cornerstone of the house. I, mm -hmm. I think that if the father is bad, rotten, missing, whatever, the entire foundation is just crap. Um, so, so in that aspect, I, I think the fathers are the most central figures. Um, now, now getting back on the, the provoking your children to wrath, like I said, I've not seen this in my life, but I've seen it in other people's lives and teenage rebellion, teenage rebellion is a real thing. Oh yeah. If you let it, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think there's ways to mitigate that many times. I mean, um, I was rebellious too, so I mean, I can't say much. Yeah, but I've I've also known teenagers that aren't right, um, mm -hmm. and I think that has a lot to do with with how the father reacts when they start testing his patience. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I wasn't near as rebellious as I make out to be a lot of times, or I'm just really good at getting away with it. <laughs> but that, that's because my my father never poked and prodded and tried to get a reaction out of me. Right, uh, and I've seen a lot of people do that, or or just I, th I think weak fathers are probably the most abusive fathers. Yeah, because they think they think that um, getting your children to obey you has to do with you intimidating them into obedience. Yeah, 
And it's not a matter of setting the principle and, and embodying that principle to mm -hmm. your children. And so they don't have the, the, the strength of, and willpower and self-control to embody the principle, but they expect their children to live it out. And mm -hmm. they almost live vicariously, that they almost live morally vicariously through their children, if that yeah. makes any kind of sense. Yeah, I've seen that a lot, or, or just not even morally, but, you know, when it comes to the sports balls. Yep. You know, like, oh, you can go to state. That's because they didn't make it to state. <laughs> right. And it's a it's a way for them to, to have accomplishment through their children. Yeah. Um, when, you know, the, their children aren't their guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's the real, um, are you really doing what's in the best interest of your children? Um, you know, that... That brings up the passage. So there's a there's a couple of different passages, and I'm going to kind of shotgun them if that's fine. Yeah, go. Um, so these will these will kind of reinforce what we've already talked about. Um, so uh, we'll start with Hebrews 12, uh, five through ten. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not. Re Regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for uh, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. Then you that you, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate sons. You, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to this father of spirits and live? For they disciplined for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us to our good, that we may share his holiness. So in this passage, um, uh the, the writer of Hebrews, which is most definitely Paul, and anybody who says otherwise is probably sinning. Who, Hebrews? Yeah. It's not Paul. Um, it's sinning. <laughs> There's things in I'm, Hebrews that Paul could never have written. I am I, I, I don't really believe that. I just like saying it because it's oh, funny. Okay. <laughs> it was um, actually Jesus that wrote Hebrews. Yes, Jesus, Jesus wrote, wrote Hebrews. Um, so... The, the parallel being brought here is that God is the good father who disciplines his children. Mm -hmm. And the discipline is all of the discipline that we get from the text and from the Holy Spirit and from um, the, the church. Um, and the disciplines can be negative. You can go through church discipline or it can be positive, which is just simply instruction. Um, and this you know segues perfectly right into Proverbs 22.6, which I think... In a way, this is kind of unisex. I think it could be either way, either for a mother or for a father. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Proverbs is written to a man. It's a king's, a king and father's advice to his son. It's because women can't read. That's right. Um, and so uh, we have now made everybody angry. Um, so it says, train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, it's also important, I want to interject something. It's important to note that these are not promises, but rather principles to live by. Now, I do believe that what you teach a child when they're young will stick with them for the rest of their life, but that does not always ensure their election. 
Right, and I'm and I'm I'm fully Baptist. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, I'm sorry, all you Presbyterian brothers. I know y'all keep trying, um, but you know the 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 point here is that this is this is what fathers are for. They set the law in the home. They they point their children towards Christ constantly. They do it while they're sitting at the house. They do it while they're walking down the road, or in our case, driving down the road. They do it while they're uh, going to bed. They do it when they raise when they wake up in the morning. They write it on the posts of the door. They write it um, on the door itself, right? And so the the whole point is, the father arranges his environment at the home to bring discipline, both positive and negative discipline, to his children, so that they will love God. And you don't have control. Over, their, over whether the Spirit changes their hearts and regenerates them. But you do have control over your home. And if you don't, then you need to get control of your home. And this, this comes with having these times where you set aside to discipline your children, either catechizing them, which is what the Shema is one of the first catechisms or, or confessions that were given. And, and the other side is laying a rod across their backside, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, Amen. right, and so the other the other passage here is, which one of you, when your son asks for an egg, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for food, you give him a, a snake, right? So if your father will take care of you in heaven, you take care of your children here. Even as a sinful parent, one who sins often, and I know he was talking about pagans in that specific passage, but in our in our context, we're talking about us as men. We are all sinful, and so uh, even though we are sinful, we still give our children discipline, and that's a means of love to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so the really the, the the crux. I mean, there's a lot in scripture that we could constantly go through. I think we we've, we've hit a lot of scriptures here just to set our argument up. Um, but you know, really, the whole the whole crux of this, the 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 Shema, as understood from Malachi. So where Malachi is kind of our door, Shema is kind of the pillar. Um, I would put the the books of wisdom, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, as kind of the the, the framing of the home, um, where it's giving you a lot of practical wisdom and it's setting your practical wisdom in order, so that you can put all of the intricate pieces of your home together. Um, and then you have the, um, the decorations and, and everything that's kind of the, the, the uh, inheritance. It's the inheritance that your children are going to get and your children's children are going to get from you. Right. And so the, this is kind of, it, it's not really a, a, um, a very simple thing that we can just you know, oh, we're your provider, protector kind of a deal. Well, no. Which is true. Which is true. That comes with it. Um, I think the more, the, the better roles here would be prophet, king, and priest. Right. Of your home. Uh, your prophet, because you're proclaiming the word of, word of God to your children. You're the priest because you administer the word to them. And you're the king because you establish order and discipline within the home. Um, and, and there's ways in which you're bringing, you're trying to bring the divine and make it tangible and and give it some viscosity and then give it to your children so that they can actually touch it in yeah. a sense. Um, and I, I don't I don't want that to be read as as 
I don't want what I just said to be understood as anything um, blasphemous. I just want it to be understood as you're trying to embody something so that they can see a they can have a right understanding of God through how you administer your duties. You you are to represent the Father to your family. Yes, absolutely. You you I mean if we're okay, so Christ perfectly imaged the Father. Mm-hmm. We are to perfectly image Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ was prophet, priest, and king. Therefore, we are to image Christ in all three roles. Right. I, I just want to make sure we're not getting yeah. any, any, we, any weirdness here. With, right. with, I know I'm saying something in kind of a mystical terminology, so I don't want it to get misunderstood. Yeah. I'm just trying to set some clear boundaries. One, one of the things you said earlier is that we, are, we should get our home in order. 100% agree. In order to get your home in order, though, you need to be in order. Absolutely, yeah. So, so to to use a um, a bit of an anecdote is I, I know a family um, that's the perfect example of a father never getting his shit in order. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna have to mark this one explicit. <laughs> but he's constantly he's you know he's he's always made good money. You know he's on he. He always likes to brag. He's owned his own business. He's had a six-figure year income, mm-hmm. uh, but he doesn't have a pot to piss in. Um, his his wife is is basically a reprobate. His daughter, um, I'm not. You know, I would. She's had tons of reprobate actions, but I'm not necessarily sure she is full-on reprobate now. Mm. Son's a hellion, and for some odd reason, they wanted to adopt another son. Oof. Yes, and and now they are living in a RV on the side of the road eating government cheese, um, and, and it's and it's because every time he asks me, you know, for advice, I have to give him the same flipping advice. You need to be a man. Oh well, I am a man. You know, he puffs out his chest, starts cocking around like a freaking rooster, and I'm like, but you don't act like a man. You act like a pussy. Yeah, well, and, and him and him bowing up at you like that when you say that is actually really effeminate. Yeah. If if he was a man, number one, he he, he wouldn't have to be tell him he needs to be a man. Right. Uh, but number two, then if he were actually doing what you say he ought to do, um, especially if you're correct and you are, then he should be safe in his own uh, attempts. I will say. Mm-hmm. You know, when my dad tells me that I need to be a better husband to my wife, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, I'm never, I never bow up at him, you know, because... He'll probably hit you, though. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but, you know, no, I, I, I never have to bow up to him because I, I don't need to get that reaction. Mm-hmm. I know where my father's coming from. Right. And my father has my best interest in mind. I have a really good father. And so when he tells me something like that, he's giving me wisdom. And so I stop and I say, you know what? I, I think I think you're right. I think I need to step back and and, and take what you're saying. And um, that that intent of of trying to help me in my marriage, which inevitably is what my father's trying to do. Um, even if I disagree with him, I'll even say, then I, I at least take it under consideration. And I go talk with my wife about what my dad said, and you know sometimes she, she was offended or she was upset at what I've done, and my dad was right, and I should have apologized because I I gave an, an unjust offense, mm-hmm. and so um, in that case I repent to my wife because 
you know, dear, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. Um, and I go back and thank my father when, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to puff myself up. What I'm saying is that if you're a man, then this is the kind of reaction you're going to have. Did I really do, did I really offend unnecessarily? There's times when it's necessary to offend, but a lot of times, you know, we've, we've done something wrong. We need to own that. Um, and, and when we don't own that, we're just recapitulating the, the, the sin of that, the second sin of Adam in the garden. Which is blaming the wife. <laughs> well, not just the wife blaming God. Yeah. It's everybody else's fault but mine. Right. It's not that I sat there and watched the, the snake deceiver. It's not that I sat there and watched my wife misunderstand the command that you gave and didn't correct her. It's not that I watched her sit there and ogle it and watch her eat it and do nothing. It's that, I mean, you gave me that woman, right? I mean, God, it's kind of your fault that I ate the fruit, right? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know it's kind of indirect, but it's kind of your fault kind of a deal. Uh, and usually what effeminate men will do is they'll do that. They avoid that responsibility. And they'll, they'll, well, no, 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 no. The, there's a reason why I did it that way. And, and they won't ever stop to consider that maybe I did sin here. And yeah. Maybe I ought to repent of that. Yeah, I, th I think a, a mark of a true man is introspection. And I'm not talking about like some kind of gay Buddhist introspection, but like really being able to self-evaluate yourself. Right. But in order to self-evaluate yourself, you need something to judge yourself by. Right. You know, And um, a lot of people don't have good fathers to evaluate themselves against. No. Um, I am very blessed that I do have a good father. And my, my you know, my father is father's a man with clay feet, just like everybody else. Right. Um, but... You know, I, I, he was he was very good about a lot of things, and I talked to him about some criticisms that I have of the way that we were raised, and he has agreed with some of my criticisms. Um, but this is one of the areas where my father absolutely did not fail me. My father was a man of dignity. My man, my, my father was a man of honor, of respect. Um, he had a he had a wonderful ethic. He did pray with us regularly. He sang with us regularly. Um, you know, we tortured the dog's ear because we can't really sing that well, but we did. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, the, that kind of a thing is what a man should be. And he should not be, you know, so easily offended by criticism. Um, you know, the, the, the kind, of, kind of truism my dad always said is even if your enemy criticizes you, there's an element of truth. And so you should you should take what your enemy says under consideration, even mm -hmm. if it's meant to hurt you. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, probably one of the you know I, I had a good bad granted flaws that I could I could go on for days about, but who 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 couldn't right? Every I mean um, they can go on about me all day. Yeah. So, but the, the probably one of the greatest things I heard right after he well actually it was just before he died. Uh, my uncle came down to visit him, and he says, in all the years I've known your dad, he's always been a good Christian man. I'm like, well, heck, I, I just want somebody to say that about me when I'm dead. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as much as we fail, you know, fairly regularly, um, I, I think that if we strive for the good, because the good does exist. It's it not does, just yeah. better. It's good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if anybody will catch that. Um, <laughs> as long as we strive for the good, then at least we're at least we're doing better than not. 
Because a lot of people don't even strive for the good. A lot of people just strive for what feels good. That's right. And, um, yeah, I mean, the whole point of being a man, a man is to self-sacrifice. Um, Paul says in Ephesians that as Christ gave his life up for the church, so we too must give our lives up for our wives. Uh, it's a paraphrase. I, I can't quote it off the top of my head at the moment, but um, we should willingly give our lives daily for our families, uh, most mainly our wives, uh, but also our children. I mean, that's what we do. We go out there and we, you know, kill the bacon and drag it home to eat. Um, less so than we used to. Used to is the good, the good old days. You'd actually go out there and kill something and bring it home. Um, nowadays, you just go get a, a paycheck. But what, what are you really doing when you go get a paycheck is you're selling your time. You're selling yourself. You're laying your life down in order to supply what your family needs. Mm -hmm. And um, it, that's probably the greatest example of how husbands are like Christ, is that we willingly give our lives up for others. But do you have anything else? Um, well, I, I, I think that... Um... I think that with with everything we've talked about here, I think we've made a good a good outline of what we what we understand the scriptures say about masculinity in terms of fathers. Um, and there's a lot to being a a man. Obviously, everybody listening to this knows that. But you know, the the point of this podcast is to go back to what our roots are. Um, but we've said constantly that if we don't understand the scriptures and we don't base everything we do in Christ, that we are going to fail about everything. And, and so I really would, you know, use this, this house analogy that we've been kind of haphazardly building here with our, There's a scripture in the new in the New Testament where it starts bringing up the Old Testament promises of land and cattle and um, you know children etc. And it's kind of turned on its head because you know the the I believe it was Paul. He said, "Seek ye first the kingdom of Christ," and his namesake and all these things will be added to you and so when when people may have raised their eyebrow when i said that the um inheritance that you leave to your children's children is this decoration within your home um this is why i've i framed it that way because the the door that we're entering into is actually christ and our turning our hearts to the children, we're using that as an entryway into this whole idea of being a father. But really what we're doing is we're imitating God when we do that. The pillar of that is the understanding, this core of wisdom, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of wisdom. That all the wisdoms of the world are subservient to that one pillar. The infrastructure would be all of the things that we practically know how to use and how to do 
And then the, the decor would be the outflow of that. All those things that have been added to the, the house that we've been building, so to speak. Um, and what that means is that you can have a house with a good roof on it and with good architecture that's sound and you don't need the decor. So even if you're not able to build multi-generational wealth, what you're doing is still good and God will still honor it. And so this is not something worth striving for because you get wealth from it or because you get station from it. It's good to do this in and of itself because by doing this, you point to Christ. And so you build everything from your home and inside your home around this pillar of fear the Lord, keep his commandments, and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to the website at southernraisedbluegrass.com. God bless y'all. I know dark clouds will gather around me. I know my way is rough and steep.